Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory, which is a podcast part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Kimberly Chong, who's a lecturer in anthropology at the University College London about a new book, Best Practice, Management Consulting and the Ethics of Financialization in China, which is published by Duke University Press. So welcome to the podcast. Hi, Dave. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Um, it's, it's great to have you on and it's, it's great to be talking about this uh, brilliant and really interesting book that is both, I guess, a kind of a very global, you know, kind of big picture book that tells the story of management consulting, financialization, but also is um, a story about contemporary China as, as well. Um, and I mean, I, there was just so much kind of fascinating stuff in there. The way to probably kind of introduce the book is, I guess, to, to, to kind of give us a sense of why you're interested in writing the book, both in terms of kind of um, these broad theories of financialization the specifics of kind of management consultancy, and then why these themes in China? Sure. So um, most large organisations, whether they're multinational corporations or big public sector organisations, will have hired management consultants at, at some point. Management consultants play a very important role in determining kind of prevailing work practices, lived experiences of labour, and also the kinds of business models and economic forms that we see in the global economy. In short, they have a huge amount of power and and influence. At the same time, their, ex- their expertise is, is, is very much subject to question. It's, it's not easy to ascertain if the kinds of prescriptions that management consultants give to their clients actually have their desired effects you know do do they work do consultants actually make things better and yet despite these question marks over their expertise you know they continue to flourish consultancy um the consulting industries is um is growing very rapidly so it, it was these two aspects that really kind of grasped my interest you know the fact that um management consultants have a growing influence in shaping global economic forms. At the same time, they have a kind of shaky expertise um, 
And, um, you know, this kind of was a starting point uh, for my investigation. I, th- I think it, it was really interesting early on in the book. You, you've got this line. I think it's something like, you know, you wanted to know what management consultants do and how they do it. And, and it sort of struck me that, you know, for, for an industry that is both incredibly economically important, but also is like clearly, you know, sort of transforming the social in a variety of different ways. It, it'd be kind of strange if we, you know, we were kind of like, well, what do doctors do? Yeah. How do they do it? Although that's obviously been like a, a tradition in bits of anthropology and, and sociology. And I guess the sort of like the setting for those questions really matters as well. And you worked with a particular organization, which you call uh, Sisteo in the book. Yeah, that's right. And you worked with them in China, although they're a, a global player with lots of different uh, bits and offices a, a across the globe. And it'd be good to get a sense of that kind of like what they do and how they do it in the Chinese context and in the context of, of Sisteo as well. So as you say, Sisteo is a pseudonym for the for this global management consultancy, which I managed to gain access to. Um, so they, yes, they're already established in Europe and North America. And at the time of my fieldwork, they um, were starting to set up operations in China in the early noughties. So I, I did my fieldwork from 2007 to 2009, but they had already set up just before then. Um, so this was very much the second phase of Deng Xiaoping's market reforms. Um, China, as as sort of everyone knows, has turned away from a socialist command economy towards one that is based on market principles. And this became you know, much more pronounced from the 1990s. And something that's very important for the management consulting industry was um, the fact that state-owned enterprises uh, were either privatised or corporatised. And uh, so the ones that are corporatised were then floated on stock exchanges. Now, these corporatised SOEs or state-owned enterprises sought the services of Western management consultancies, global management consultancies, including Sisteo, to help them prepare for um, their stock market flotation. And the kind of consultancy that Sisteo does was was very much critical to them being asked to help out in, in this in this process. So most people will have heard of kind of strategy consultants, you know, the likes of McKinsey. Um, however, the largest management consultancies, both in terms of headcount and profit, are ones which, you know, ones which sell consulting solutions that involve IT in some kind of way. So um, selling IT management systems or IT enabled outsourcing. Um, And this is exactly what Sisteo does. Um, So it would sell IT systems, in particular, one called ERP systems, enterprise resource planning systems, to state-owned enterprises. And these were kinds of representations of modern management um, to assuage investors that um, that the, the concerns of, of investors who might be worried that you know SOEs are not operating according to global norms. You know, by installing mo- modern management IT systems, you sort of say, well, actually, they're just like other big blue chip companies that you've heard heard of. Um, that they're, they're not sort of some kind of socialist, uh, you know, uh, you know, employment centre or something. You know, they're they're actually operating to the norms of global capitalism that you, you and I all know very well. So that's really why. Cons- Western consultancies were brought into these Chinese firms, and that that was very lucrative for for Sisteo and and um, other similar consultancies. I mean, it, it, it's it's so interesting that point actually. The kind of 
it's not even attention, is it? It's the question of how these standard models get adapted uh, around the world and what that tells us both about the standard model and how, you know, secretly it's kind of quite flexible, uh, but also what it tells us about the context um, in which those models are sort of placed into. And I guess the final kind of bit of ground clearing is, is maybe a kind of theory question. There's, um, you know, you talk about financialization and the title of the book, but also commensuration uh, is, is really important throughout the book. Uh, and those two terms, it, it'd be good to hear a kind of definition or, you know, a, a little um, sort of explanation of what they are, because I think crucially they explain actually how these kind of standard practices like, you know, Mm-hmm. IT systems or preparations for um, being sold or you know opened up to um, an IPO or, or whatever have a particular kind of manifestation when when they're in China. Yeah, so in in the book I document how the expansion of management consultant um, went hand in hand with the rise of financialization. Um, so you know, financialization has you know has 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 various definitions. Um, you know, some people say it's you know the increased importance of financial markets, um, the increasing importance of finance for non-financial entities. You know, other people have highlighted um, the importance of shareholder value ideology. You know, the fact that uh, companies are uh, uh, you know see their sole mission as being creating value for their shareholders at the expense of other stakeholders. Now, the approach I take in in this book is to say, well. You know, seeing financialization as these different definitions is kind of a red herring. What joins or encompasses these um, different definitions is how different regimes of worth have been established or brought into play. Um, you know, you know how have they sought to elevate the production of certain registers of value, like financial value. And the title of my book, Best Practice, highlights this. It highlights the fact that consultants are in the business of creating an ethical remit for their interventions. So no set of practices are self-evidently best or good. Rather, their designation as best has to be created and worked on. So, you know, to say, oh, we should pursue shareholder value and that is best practice. You know, what do we have to do in order to make that claim and substantiate that claim? So what I argue is that management consultants are in the business of naturalizing or legitimating certain regimes of worth through which different registers of value are brought into equivalence. In other words, they work to commensurate different values you know so these could be financial value and social values um cultural values um and so i'm asking you know certain questions you know how do consultants instantiate new regimes of worth into their clients organizations you know what techniques and what kinds of devices do they draw on to um instantiate these kinds of um these regimes of worth and these questions really highlight the importance of commensuration for performing consultants' expertise. I mean, one really great example, um, I think it's, it's maybe in the second chapter of the book or maybe the third, of precisely one of those devices is the idea of the billable hour 
and this this word that I was really into this billability yeah. um, as a kind of mode of measurement performance management tool um, but also something that was basically kind of necessary for the functioning of the company you know without it it was almost kind of impossible to see how the company could could function and I wonder actually whether that um, could be used as an, as an example to kind of talk about commensuration in practice through what seems to be sort of like you know um, quite a complicated um, and highly gameable um, system of, of measurement. Yeah, so performance management was um, it, it's something that is it, it's it is ubiquitous. You know, most of us um, will have come into contact with performance management, whether in our own employment or you know we know other people who are who are managed via performance management, um, and yet. And in many ways, you know, people know that it's highly problematic, um, uh, but it, you know, continues to to prevail. Um, and management consultants, you know, they not not only practice it in house. You know, they're also um, they're also responsible for propagating performance management. You know, a lot of what they do is to sell performance management as uh, a management solution, um, and. I found performance management just fascinating. It was a place where you could find commensuration happening in all different kinds of, of ways. Um, it's, it's really integral to things like rating and ranking employees, which you see in many different kinds of organizations. Um, and, you know, this idea that, you know, you can judge an employee's performance by objectives that they set themselves, you know, that sounds, that sounds great. Um, 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 but, you know, in practice, it's actually very difficult to compare the performances of different employees. You know, to do that, you need to narrow down the range of criteria, which in itself is a moral and political choice about what are the suitable criteria, um, which can be used to measure performance. So in the case of consultants, um, one criteria which was very important, and which I talk about, which you've just mentioned, is billable hours, billability. And so, you know, billability referred to the number of hours or the, the sort of the, the percentage of their work time which they could bill to a client. And I talk about how this is used as a proxy for consultants' revenue generating capabilities, which in turn is used as an index for their performance. Um, and you know, the kind of questions that I posed is, you know, well, you know, what that suggests that these are first of all that you know billability is completely within a consultant's control, when actually I show that that's not always the case. Um, you know, if the company isn't if the consultancy isn't doing very well, there might not be any projects, there might not be any clients who who want to um, you know, hire Sisteo and and you know, you might have a low billable score for that. Um, and yet it's internalized through these systems as a quality of individual merit. Um, and I show the sort of various ways in which this is done, how different registers of value are made commensurate in order to kind of produce these discursive effects. I mean, at the same time, I suppose like a, a lot of us think, you know, Pay is wages, salary um, is is a way of, of doing commensuration of, of making you know kind of 
rankings or, or, or judgments about people. But at the same time as this system of billability um, is crucial to Sisteo in, in, in China and you know its broader operations, you show in that second chapter that like talking about money was a big no-no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, I, and I was really struck by the story you tell, uh, I think it's at the start of that chapter, about how discussions about pay were really off the table, you know, and, and were really kind of inappropriate. And and in some ways were framed as, as actually a, a problem uh, about how management consultancy was going to, you know, struggle in China because precisely people were, you know, asking about salaries, which was sort of a strange um, kind of position to be in. Yeah, so because management consulting is primarily an ethical project, you know, it's creating ethical remits for change within an organisation, the prevailing norms or ethics of everyday operation are very important. Now, when it became apparent that some of the most taken-for-granted norms, such as the salary taboo, were not found in China, this had, you know, this had really big implications for the potential success of management consulting in this context. So, you know, it's worth just sort of talking a little bit about the salary taboo. So, you know, in 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 the UK and in and in the US certainly, um, you know, it's considered to be taboo to tell people or to ask someone how much how much they earn. And you know, one of the reasons why that is is because um, personal worth is quite closely tied to financial worth in these places. However, in China, there are there are different indexes of of individual worth, such as. You know, what I what I talk about, which is the Chinese concept of suzhi, a term which is usually glossed as human quality. And suzhi is a value which cannot be reduced to economic or market value. Um, in that sense, it's a form of status that is irreducible to, to money or income. And because there is this looser connection between personal worth and, and economic worth, speaking openly about money is less problematic in in China. Now, what are the implications for performance management? So what I show is that performance management actually needs this salary taboo. It needs employees to not talk to each other about how much they earn. What we're told in performance management is that what you are paid is supposed to be tied to your performance, tied to merit. However, we all know that there are other reasons why someone might be paid more or less than you. You know, we, we know there are gender gaps when it comes to pay. Um, there are other forms. Um, there are other forms of discrimination at play as well. Um, in order, though, for performance management to be seen only as a meritocratic system, you need to ensure that people are not asking each other how much they are paid, um, and to therefore keep this. Um, you know, hidden assumption that actually performance is all is is really what's driving um, pay differentials within an organisation. So what what happened was when you know as soon as you know pay rises or bonuses came out, um, people was you know the Chinese consultants would instantly start sharing this information, and those who didn't get as big a, a rise or bonuses as, as the others would go to their managers and ask for a rise. 
And this kind of threatened the performance management system and more importantly threatened their expertise because then how were they going to sell this system onto their clients if they weren't behaving appropriately them, you know, within their own um, management systems? I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off that i mean there's lots and lots of things to pick up on that um and, and you've you've actually you know kind of laid out many of the themes that come up later in the book i'm um, maybe I'll, I'll pick up on one in particular which is like literally the last thing you just said which was this idea about kind of selling consultancy and i guess that takes us back to the question of like what do management consultants do? Mm-hmm. How do they do it? So how were they kind of trained to sell consultancy? You know, like like you've got this example of um, a short film that has, you know, a really kind of like strong social or ethical impact, mm-hmm. but it's also like absolutely appalling at the same time. Yeah. Um, and that was a way of kind of almost like mystifying what it is to sell um, this kind of, on the one hand, quite unclear object, but also this set of, you know, quite rigid quasi-scientific techniques. So, yeah, how are they trained to sell and what is it that they're selling? Really good questions. Um, So it's it's important to remember that consultants aren't always hired for tangible results. Clients can call in consultants because of internal politics, you know, that warrants... Um, and outsourcing of decision making, um, you know, so it's not because A wants it or B wants it, it's because the management consultants say it's it's the best course of action. Um, so how how then do consultants make make this case? So what I show is that you know consultants are taught the importance of of, of narrative, you know, to make the moral and political imperative for their interventions, and and this is important because. Um, you know, the knowledge that they sell um, is, well, one, it's often borrowed from other sources. You know, management consultants rarely produce proprietary knowledge. Um, but also the character of the knowledge they sell, you know, it. I, I talk about how, you know, consultants are selling performative you know, knowledge, performative business models. That is to say, they're in the business of creating new economic realities um, through which they then hope to substantiate their claim to expertise, if that makes sense. Um, And so one of the ways that they learn how to do this is by trying to find or perform, rather, a scientific basis for their 
for the knowledge, for the expertise that they are selling. So um, in the chapter that you're referring to, I, I, I talk about the different kinds of, um, you know, devices um, uh, through which they are taught to, you know, believe in their in their own capacities to control sort of inherently uncertain and unpredictable aspects of of organizations and client relations. So I talk about the deal power maps, um, also the trust equation, you know, consultancies, consultants rather learn um, of the importance of develop, cl- developing client relations and that this moreover has a scientific um, uh, foundation. So, you know, trust can be modeled through the trust equation. Um, and this, these kinds of, the, these ways of talking about social relations have particular um you know subjectifying effects um it helps consultants to um really um believe in the potency of of their expertise which is very you know it's it's especially necessary when you don't have proprietary knowledge when you know there is a kind of um unverifiability to your expert expertise I mean, it, if there is this, uh, I keep saying tension, but in some ways, you know, it, it's not actually attention because it's it's productive. But if there is this sense of, you know, the, the sort of um, the mystical and the scientific at the same time and the, you know, training in how to um, be able to speak these languages and roll out these these techniques with promises of, as you've mentioned, you know, financial performance Mm -hmm. but also things like you will just you know the company will be better you know this this sort of thing what was it like to kind of to live as these one of one of these people to you know to kind of be these uh, management consultants later on the book you've got this example of uh global co Mm -hmm. um, which uh you use i guess as almost a kind of an ethnography of like what life is like for um the impression I got at least was, you know, um, a member of the, the Chinese middle class. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's what I found fascinating when I was doing my field work was that um, probably more so than expatriate consultants, Chinese consultants were really quite aware of the contradictions of management consulting. Um and and I actually think this was quite um, helpful for them in terms of their, you know, managing their clients and their and a sort of lived experience um, of, of consulting. You know, I was always impressed by the remarkable sensitivity and emotional intelligence of the consultants, of the Chinese consultants who, you know, they seem to be able to read their clients incredibly well and react very, um, very nimbly to their their demands um, and in the ethnography of of global co this this client this global this sort of multinational corporation that i call global co um, i i talk about how you know although there's this emphasis on kind of you know skill sets and you know consultants technical capabilities you know that kind of narration seems to miss the heart of consulting which is actually client relations and um, I think that the Chinese consultants did very well at managing client relations, um, but there was this—you know—they were really being pulled 
sort of in different directions all the time. You know, the clients were always making demands on them um, and they were expected to almost um, kind of you know, disappear into the or melt into the client's organisation. Um, and, you know, I talk about how there's a sort of a liminal experience of being a management consultant. On the one hand, you know, they are, you know, they are Sisteo consultants and they're supposed to be you know, ambassadors um, for the company. On the other hand, they spend the majority of their time inside their clients' organisations. And in order to, you know, foster good client relations, you know, they have to, you know, almost be kind of seamless with their clients. Um, and some of them, you know, they even have, you know, their clients' email addresses, you know, they have an email address of their client's organisation, rather, um, and they need to behave in a way that is acceptable to their clients. And so this sort of leads to this in betweenness, you know, they have to at once fulfil um, the kind of professional protocols of being a sustainable management consultant. At the same time, they need to fulfil, um, you know, or at least, you know, uh, you know, resonate or embody the norms and values of their clients, um, and I think this is this is actually quite quite difficult and and um, and quite quite a stressful thing to do. But I think the consultants did it very well, especially those who had been there for a while, um, and they had learnt that this was really what it meant to be a good management consultant. I mean, there's there's other examples in the book of. Uh, particular kinds of, of labor and, and laboring spaces uh, that speak more directly to the kind of uh, global nature of um, management consultants uh, as a sort of economic practice. But I, I, I wonder if we might talk a little bit more about that, um, not set of tensions, but, you know, that kind of like um, balancing of the Chinese context. And, and right towards the end of the book, you, you sort of drill down into um, something that is a fairly sort of standard idea um, in many of our like discussions of contemporary business, which is uh, corporate social responsibility. Um, but that you know, kind of everyday lived reality that you've just described manifests itself um, sort of differently um, in in the Chinese context when it comes to CSR with like placements, social impact schemes. Uh, you might actually the, the story of the charity bike ride was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and what struck me about that chapter was not so much the kind of, you know, CSR story, but how, uh, I'll be delicate here, but how many of the employees were, were seen as a kind of problem that needs to be mm. quote unquote civilized um, into the demands of a global management company. Um, and it'd be great to hear both the kind of the story of CSR, you know, perhaps through these uh, social schemes, but also that underlying, um, I guess, yeah, civilizing project, which which I must admit I found kind of like highly problematic. Yeah, so so I wouldn't be the first, um, you know, academically studying management consultants to say that you know academic, that management consultants rather are. Um, you know, in the business of of selling professionalism or embodying professionalism, um, and if you if if you you know, I, and I you know, I would agree with that view, but I also you know, I have a lot more to add. You know, I also talk about you know, as I already said, you know, the importance of of, of an ethical remit and creating that ethical um, uh, ethical projects. But but if you see professionalism as being integral 
to being a management consultant, you can start to understand why having the right kind of subjectivity is so important um, for Sisteo. And so, you know, they come to China, they set up office in China, um, and and although you know China has already, you know, market reforms have already, you know, they've already been been going for quite a while. They're in full swing. Um, many of the things that they take for granted about market oriented practice, you know, capitalist norms, simply aren't there. And yet, you know, there's a, an assumption that this is an a uni, these are universal. This is a kind of, um, you know, a universal way of operating. And so, a lot of the the differences. Um, that expatriates encountered, the expatriate consultants encountered when in, in, in China was often posed as a difference, you know, a cultural difference, which, you know, which I found always highly problematic. Um, and, you know, a very simplistic answer for explaining why certain initiatives wouldn't work. But nevertheless, it was interesting that this you know, assumed cultural difference then led to an, to an assumption and practices that, you know, that we should then try to, you know, improve the subjectivities of Chinese consultants. You know, as you say, it's sort of this idea of sort of civilizing them somehow to the needs of a global uh, management consultancy. And one of the ways which they, they did this was through CSR, through corporate social responsibility. Now, CSR was again was it, it it was in its infancy in the China offices. It was very well established in Sisteros Europe and North America offices, and it was seen as a very important way of nourishing employee engagement. So, you know, as I just described in earlier chapters, employee engagement has sort of two alternate has alternative. Um, narrations on the one hand it's seen as a way of you know improving employee motivation and commitment to the firm at the same time it's measured through total shareholder return in other words employees are also seen as a financial asset um so what was interesting in this context was that it, what i was observing was a kind of an example of internal csr csr is often associated with companies that you know clearly produce harmful effects so you know tobacco companies oil companies and so those kind of companies you know they they they're very concerned about the kind of reputational uh, benefits that csr might confer you know management consultancies by contrast can seem you know they seem pretty benign but in fact, management consultancies can be quite destructive. You know, they can wreak harm through, you know, restructuring you know, IT systems that, that, that don't work. They, they divert funds um, which have been earmarked for other purposes. You know, the NHS spends millions of pounds on consultants, for example. So there is this question of, you know, do, you know, do management consultants, you know, do their interventions work? You know, is it fraud? And therefore, there's clearly a need to, conspicuously ethicise their work and the, the company's reputation. Um, and this was also, this was important, not just externally, but also internally. You know, consultants, you know, they are very aware that that there are question marks over their expertise and, and about 
and what they're doing to other organisations. And there is this need to fill this kind of moral and social vacuum. So what I argue is that CSR is vital to this. And I describe a particular CSR initiative, this charity bike ride. Um, which takes place in Sichuan uh, in the aftermath of the terrible er earthquake that happened there. Um, and, you know, um, what was very interesting, was, you know, I, I, I joined the, the, the consultants in cycling across Sichuan um, and, you know, I was able to get a lot of, um, you know, have a lot of conversations with them about what exactly they were doing and what they thought, you know, what they thought this bike ride was achieving. And, you know, what what I found was that actually, you know, there are particular assumptions that underpin CSR. You know, you, t you find that CSR tries to fill in the gaps of the state. You know, it happens when, when the state is usually absent. Um, so, you know, it's the idea that, like, you know, if we didn't come here, um, then these children wouldn't have a school. You know, we're here to help rebuild their school that got... Um, you know, that, that fell down during the earthquake. Now, that kind of ethical impetus doesn't really have traction if the consultants say, yes, but even if we didn't come here, wouldn't, wouldn't the state have rebuilt it anyway? Right. Um, so in other words, CSR doesn't quite work. It doesn't have the same ethical effects when there is a strong state like you find in China. And because it doesn't have the same kind of ethical effects, it also doesn't have the same subjectifying effects that is desired as an internal kind of management practice, if that makes sense. I mean, it, it, it's so fascinating because all the way through the book is that, you know, kind of, kind of question of, of almost what will win. <laughs> will you know the practices of commensurization and the associated kind of you know little financialized subjects that it might produce um how will it be adapted uh, to the chinese mm. context and i mean what will win is not an appropriate question you know to ask a you know both a kind of fascinating um bit of anthropology but also a really rich um anthropological study um but yeah, what will win? <laughs> you know, will will we see maybe the kind of re-exporting of a particular Chinese mode of commensuration back to the states, uh, back to, to to Britain? You know, those kind of consultants, or you know, will it be a case of um, China's um, state doing what it's done seemingly for um, for a long time now, and just you know, kind of adapting the bits that work? Um, and you know, kind of dumping the bits that don't. You know, a strong um, social norm around like not asking for wages. Well, that's not going to work here. Mm. But actually, you know, the techniques of billability. Um, you know, they they can be applied. Um, you know, that kind of like outward. We've rebuilt your school. You should be, you know, proud of us as I don't know a monstrous oil company isn't going to work. But you know the kind of the sense of we have a different relationship with our uh, corporate entity and our corporate identity because we've been involved in this project. What, what do you think? Well, I, I would say that you know 
possibly, I mean, not possibly, probably that, you know, that that these questions and and the approach that I've taken reflects, um, you know, reflects methodology, reflects the terms of access, you know, Um, in, in the sense that, you know, the one of the reasons why Sestero let me in was because they were, um, you know, they were very puzzled by these <laughs> differential responses, um, both from their own consultants, but also from Chinese clients. And, you know, rather than taking that at face value, I took that as a kind of rupture um, through which, you know, I would be able to explore um the different kinds of epistemologies and also, um, you know, techniques and practices that are, you know, really the foundation of management consulting. Um, I think really a lot of the problem stems from the fact that what management consultants do is they 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 really try to um, suggest that there's a kind of, you know, there's this universalizing tendency in terms of the narration of their interventions that this, you know, this is the you know, a best practice. Um, and that there, there is this, um, you know, this, there's a undefiable kind of um, basis to these, these claims. And what I show in the ethnography is how, you know, this veil is kind of pulled back by the Chinese consultants who are constantly revealing how, um, historically and locally situated these claims really are and that when you try to then export uh, models which are historically and locally situated in a financialized western context to state capitalist China you undoubtedly are going to come across um, particular challenges or hurdles um, uh, in the process and and in a way this isn't this isn't surprising. Um, perhaps what is more surprising is is assuming that these models could be seamlessly replicated all over the world. Um, and yes, of course, China has its own, you know, very very specific um, kind of nature of of its of its economy. Um, you know, a, a strong state. Um, this kind of state capitalist form, but at the same time, that there are aspects of the Chinese economy which you can find elsewhere as well. I mean, China is not the only place with a strong state, um, and I would say that you know that there there are aspects of you know orientalization of of difference that were clearly present, you know, and and are kind of you know revealed in the ethnography as well. That you know, I, I sort of question to what extent, you know, is is China so different. But at the same time, I suggest that when when difference is highlighted by Chinese consultants, you know, it's more that they are they are revealing that certain assumptions are quite specific to the the origination of 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 these business models or management systems, um, and that we need that you know that. That doesn't mean that they can't be used in China, but perhaps different systems of meaning have to be drawn on in order to make them intelligible to Chinese clients. There's so much more we could discuss, actually, um, even in that answer about um, you know the, the reconfiguration of, of these practices um, to and fro around around the globe. But I, I guess. Um, and you know, I, I urge people to to read the book. You know, it, it's as I say, there's so much more 
in the book than we we might have, have spent time talking about. But I, I might leave you with a, a kind of like quite mean question, which is: so what are you doing next? <laughs> Obviously, this you know the ethnographic practice and writing the book takes an incredibly long time. Uh, you know, it's a very different uh, style of research to um, things that maybe you know might be done a, a little quicker, but there's always the kind of sense of uh, projects that could come from the book or are you interested in doing something completely different? Hmm. So I have, I have um, you know, a couple of different projects that I'm um, you know, developing at a nascent stage. Um, but one of them um, is looking at economic imagination um, in state capitalist China. So um, I still want to work in China and look at um, uh, you know aspects of financialization um, and economic practice in China. But I am kind of shifting slightly away from from working in an organization, and that's partly because of the you know there's a huge time investment mm. um, in, in terms of doing an ethnography of of an organization, not least in getting access. It took me six months to get access to Sisteo, and and I um, uh, I simply don't have that 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 luxury of that time and um, to do, to do that again. Um, so um, you may or may not know that. China's in terms of China's um, stock markets, it's quite unusual and quite different from, um, uh, you know, uh, from say uh, the UK or, or or the US. In that the majority of investors in in Chinese stock markets are not institutional investors, but retail investors. That is, um, you know, everyday citizens, ordinary citizens rather, who are investing in the stock market. Um, and what's interesting. You know, in other words, I, I wouldn't be studying experts. I would be studying non-experts and their um, and their economic practices. And I'm very interested in them because, unlike, say, fund managers or um, you know pension funds, um, they typically aren't making kind of evaluations about you know a company's future profitability when they buy their shares. Instead, they're speculating on on state policies and perhaps state intervention in the stock market. And we saw this in 2015 when there was a big, um, a big crash. Uh, the state intervened, you know, halted trading and IPOs. Um, and so, you know, this idea that when people are investing in the stock market, they're actually speculating on the state, I find really tantalising and really interesting. So I'm hoping to develop um, an ethnographic project um, which will look at um, you know the practices of investing, and in particular, you know how do people, um, you know, with what narratives, you know, um, what, you know, do they actually, um, you know, develop the conviction to to invest in such um, a kind of unpredictable um, context? Sounds like a fantastic book project. I, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. It, it's going to be many years in the making, and, and I'm yet to do the fieldwork, but um, that's that's certainly going to be the the next thing on my agenda. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.